So hi, I'm Jessica. I'm a rising second year in the MR1 program. I'm currently quarantined here in San Diego, California. Um, I'm Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. I'm a marine biologist by training. I work on climate policy. Um, yeah, I'm an ocean climate nerd from Brooklyn, New York. My name is Brian Seeley Jr. I am an architect out of New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, and you know, our work focuses on design justice, which is the kind of intersection of justice-centered issues and the physical environment of the built world. Great. I want to thank you both again for waking up early to do this, <laughs> first of all. You're but, welcome. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I actually... am decisively not a morning person. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> really? Oh, Brian, I thought for sure you were a morning person. No, you don't see these eyes. I stay up until like 2 a.m. Me morning too. All the time so bad. Work, yeah. I'm like, tonight I'm going to bed before midnight, and then I fail again. Never happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yeah, and I actually discovered who you were in your work a couple weeks ago through Oana Stanescu's Instagram story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... Um, She's the best. She really is super cool. She doesn't know who I am, but I am like admiring her work from afar as well. So am but, I. I'm admiring it from slightly closer, but still. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you connected me to Brian and now we're mm-hmm. both sitting here. So it's so, it's so great to There's have There's another fun connection podcast. there, which is that... Um, Juana and some others did have been arranging this fundraiser for um, based around design justice. And one of the um, by by sort of auctioning these different pieces. Um, and I, I don't Brian, I don't think you know this yet. I bid on that amazing photograph of her back. Oh, oh I did saw you? That. And I won because I'm oh. stubborn and I need to win if I'm going to be at an auction. <laughs> So I got. So I texted her. I was like, "I now literally have your back," (laughs) and I got to support Brian's work. So it was a total win-win. Oh my god! Of course. Oh, the design yard sale, right? Yeah. The proceeds Mm -hmm. got to co-locate. That's amazing. (laughs) So the other fun thing that Brian doesn't know yet is that when I met Oana at um, it was at the gala for the Plus Pool, which she's one of the leaders of um, Mm -hmm. in New York as a marine biologist and a New Yorker. Like, I think it's very cool that they want to build a swimming pool in New York City's waters and sort of all the attention that's brought to to water quality and how we use our coastline. And when I met her there, we ended up talking about the fact that my dad was an architect. He, I think, was the, uh, you know, he was a partner in in what may have been the first black architecture firm in New York City um, in the early 70s. And I have no idea what buildings he's done because we don't have any records. And she like was determined to track them down for me. So she found out that his old partner is still working um, upstate New York. And so she would, was going to help me get back in touch so that I could like figure out what all buildings around here my dad had worked on because architecture, as, as I'm sure Brian knows, is one of the most insular and often racist fields. And so his work to open doors for others, I didn't appreciate until like last year, just knowing how many people he had mentored, how, um, how many sort of blows he had taken on behalf of others. Um, and it was actually meeting Oana and others at that event for Plus Pool that kind of helped me connect the dots and appreciate his legacy, which um, is such a gift. Yeah. 
Absolutely. That's amazing that she was able to find that information for you as well. Yeah. Um, so how do you two know each other? Or how did you guys meet? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you so, laugh like it's a crazy story. It's not that crazy. Well, it's not that crazy. I mean, so so <laughs> about <laughs> was it, I guess two years ago, Ted decided to invite all the black people to... Um, one event at one time and we all showed up and we were all surprised and, and so uh, uh, Ayana and I met uh, at TED conference in 2018 and got to know each other a little bit during the sessions but I think ultimately we had this kind of uh, dance party at the end of the week and we, it was just so much you know, full of black joy in that space and Doc was just killing it on the dance floor. And <laughs> we were just. I do so, like so to I dance. It, oh, so do I. And so we were having such a, a wonderful time, and I think uh, ultimately there was like immediate bonds connected in that in that time. It was like one of the best dance it. circles of all oh, time. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a real. Once they started one. Yeah. up with the Afro beats, it was all yeah, over. Yeah, we were, we were <laughs> in it. <laughs> And so there's there's a bit, there's been a lot of, of bonds that have, have uh, come out of that that particular um, event, but I think ultimately, uh, you know, Ayana and I have, have formed a pretty strong bond, uh, not just out of that, but continuing to stay in touch since then. Yeah. So the way in which like my work overlaps with Brian's is that, you know, we both live and work in coastal cities. And there are a lot of design challenges around what the future looks like, especially in the context of climate change. So the new initiative that I'm working on is called Urban Ocean Lab. Um, If you want to check that out, it's just urbanoceanlab.org. It's a policy think tank for the future of coastal cities, but really grounded in design. How do we envision and design the future we want and then create around that, the policy framework that we need in order to have that future. And so as I was dreaming up this think tank, which is co-founded in partnership with Jean Flemma, who worked on Capitol Hill in Congress for over two decades on environmental policy and politics, and then Marquis Stilwell, who leads a design firm in New York City called Openbox, The three of us as co-founders were like, well, we need to build a board of advisors because even though there is quite a diversity of expertise represented among the co-founders, like we need a bunch of smart people around us. So, of course, we thought of Brian, who has collaborated with Marquise in other iterations as well. It's like, how can we make sure this design justice element is a part of our DNA, a part of how we think about the world and the future? Because when we think about climate change and we think about the future, we need to be considering who is the future being built for, right? Right. How are we all going to get to live in the future together? So yeah, I'm and really it's glad huge. that Brian was like, I don't know what this thing is, but sure, you can I'm put here. my name on your website. <laughs> I'm here for it. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, as, as a designer, we are faced with the idea uh, of sustainability and climate change consistently in that we... You know, we recognize that 39% of all emissions come from buildings, right? Uh, 40% of all energy use comes from buildings, right? Uh, 71% of all of the energy use or the kind of carbon that, uh, I'm sorry, the, the CO2 that's, that's put into the world is a byproduct of the built environment. And so you're not solving 
climate change issues without the uh, without solving some of the larger considerations mm-hmm. of the built environment, and it mm-hmm. just it just won't happen. Yeah, I was looking into the Urban Ocean Lab, and I thought it was super compelling in terms of thinking about this as architecture being an industry and then architecture being a culture. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to change the industry without the people in the culture getting involved in policy in very concrete decision making. And the only way but to policy really change, change the industry, usually yeah. follows a cultural change, right? Politicians right. are are often followers in terms of like what is their public support for? They want to get reelected. They that's why they do polling, right? They want to know what people like. Mm-hmm. Um, so people like us have to like make things popular, make new versions of the future exciting for the public and then the politicians will be like oh that's what you guys want i guess i guess we could get behind that crazy yeah. <laughs> yeah and then the building industry just doesn't budge they're just so resistant to changing yeah. um unless the policies move them so yeah. yeah so both of you have been extremely active in this fight for justice whether it's with the climate justice or the design justice movement um mm-hmm. for a long time now But I was just wondering if you sense a difference in people's energies these days in their reactions to your work and how they're responding to your message now versus before. Brian, what's your inbox like? Yeah, it's crazy, right? Yeah, it's just, insane. It doesn't stop. People are like, I mean, I, oh shit, we have to care about black people and other things at the same time. Let's email Brian yeah. and Ayana. There, there you go. <laughs> let's, let's just, uh, it, you know, it's such an influx that it's, it's weird to... Mm-hmm. And, and and the the questions are very simple, right? They're they're not trying to expand the conversation. They're trying to solve a problem, and that I think oftentimes, um, you know, we talk often about the fact that it, it's not ever going to be the the quantity of of people who are engaged with it. It has to be a a real concerted effort to change your long-term processes. And so we have a lot of people, I mean, I have a lot of people in the inbox asking for various trainings and workshops. And while that's valuable- And just like um, one-off advice yeah. on like company yeah. strategy or hires or something like that. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's just, yeah. I mean, it's silly because ultimately we're talking about, again, as Ayanna just mentioned, it is a cultural shift. It is a process mm-hmm. shift. And if you understand what culture is, culture is, you know, we often talk about culture as the consequence of persistent circumstance and immediate condition, yeah. right? It is fundamentally about how um, we form coping mechanisms to deal with the world we have to deal with. And it's mm-hmm. often centered around our racial, ethnic, national kind of uh, identities um, because those are the things that white supremacy often pushes us to to acknowledge or to deal with in the world in in very specific ways. So I do feel like there is a push and a drive from people to learn more. Uh, I'm not sure that, I'm just not sure that the next step is is going to be there. I'm not sure that people will then say, you know, let's, uh, let's inherently change uh, our DNA so that this is a part of who we are in perpetuity, not just Mm -hmm. for the moment. Brian, one example of that sort of superficial engagement is I saw a tweet by a young woman who works at a bookstore and she was like, thank you to all the white people who have ordered how to be an anti-racist. Can you please come pick up your books? Like we don't have room for, to hold all these books for you yeah. indefinitely. So people are like ordering the books 
and not even taking them home. Like they're like, oh, and we're supposed to order it from a local bookstore. Okay, got it. But then they don't actually read the books, let alone like (laughs) digest the material and think about how that needs to change how they show up in the world, right? Um, And so I do think that like the thing that I think is different this time is just the number of white people who are engaging at all. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the protests in New York City have been majority white. You're now seeing, you know, according to the New York Times analysis, um, you know, there, there's been a Black Lives Matter protest in nearly every um, sort of county district in America. And most of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, most of the rural places are mostly white. My mom's small town upstate New York has like weekly protests in town like the farmers drive in and hold up their signs right and you know there aren't a lot of black folks there so this is very different um it is not black people in cities only um this is a this is the largest social movement in history according to some measures so it's for sure an inflection point i think what's not clear is like what exactly we're inflecting toward and i sort of met this moment with like frustration and grief and fury and have tried to channel that into my writing and the op-eds that I've published. And it turns out once you publish an op-ed, people then want to talk to you about your op-ed and you're like, that's why I wrote it. So you could just read it and like share yeah. it with other people and leave me alone. <laughs> um, and so I really wanted to go into a cave during all this and just sort of like read and think. But I realized like, if this is the moment when people are listening, well, I guess this is when I have to talk. Like, it doesn't matter if I'm tired. Like, this is the moment. So I'm curious, mm-hmm. Brian, if, like, you've had a similar experience. Yeah. I mean, I think the idea that design can play a part in larger movements has been something that we've been tracking and working on for so long. And being a part of movement work, being being uh, an organizer and an activist, um, I spent most of my life kind of separating those two considerations, right? Being a designer and being an organizer. And this moment did bring that to bear Mm -hmm. in a real way. Mm -hmm. Um, As moments did before, I mean, we started working on removing racist monuments in New Orleans in 2015. Um, And and so to, to think about you know, what we were going to do to, to respond to this moment, the, 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 the answers for, for us were we can sit back and let, you know, white people feel the kind of burn in this moment, um, the industry that we uh, persist within feel the, the, the burn, or we can kind of provide a larger framework for what uh, the vision of a new world looks like. And I think ultimately I kept, uh, and I don't know why I keep coming back to this particular quote, but it's a response in uh, Salalinsky's Rules for Radicals that talks about building a bridge to a radical future. Um, you know, the world we live in is not there. And ultimately, uh, jolting people over to radicalism is not usually that effective, right? Mm. Uh, unless you're primed for mm-hmm. it. And so for the masses, you actually have to build the bridge. And it's more labor intensive and it's more emotionally intensive uh, than it should be for uh, Black and Indigenous people. But if we truly want to see a world uh, that is anti-racist, uh, if you truly want to see a world that, that starts to shed itself of its oppressions, then we do have to build the frameworks and the bridges. And this was, like, like Ayana said, the, the moment 
where we can choose to build those bridges. And I think that's what we're doing. Not, not, to, not to be complicit, not to uh, placate uh, whiteness, but to say, here is a way for you to come over to radicalism, not so that we can find some ridiculous middle, but to really get to the root of our issues and mm-hmm. bring people to a radicalism that actually moves us forward with, with justice as justice and liberation as the kind of core components of the work. It's so funny to hear you talk about radicalism when the radical idea is justice and equity. Yeah. 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 And like, shouldn't we all get to like have a decent yeah. life and not be dealing yeah. with state sanctioned violence and murder? Like, you would think the radical think. thought that for we sure. wouldn't just kill black people for no reason. Um, we want to do it. So, <laughs> yeah, but that's kind of like where we are. We just, there's so much in American history that we haven't really grappled with. I mean, right. yeah. the the fact that the police evolved from whites who were incentivized to catch runaway slaves and sort of be a part of, you know, literally upholding white supremacy. That is the history that we ha- are still in the throes of. And so I think okay. the defund the police movement is actually a, a really interesting I would call it, you know, design justice in some sense, right? It's like, how Mm -hmm. can we imagine a totally different way of protecting each other and keeping each other safe? And that's the same thing that I'm trying to work on with Urban Ocean Lab and Coastal Cities. Like, we just need to envision this whole different way of being in relationship with nature and the sea and our changing climate. And so I think one of the problems that we've had that slowed progress on a lot of issues is that we can't really imagine in a concrete way what that better future looks like, right? Like we know the present is bad. Um, We know this is like the status quo is not going to cut it. Um, But it's really hard. Like, and we sort of know what we're running away from. We know we're running away from injustice and brutality. We know we're running away from the impacts of the climate crisis. But if we can't really see what, we're running towards, then we like, don't really run. We kind of like saunter, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And so I think a lot of this work is helping people see what this alternative future looks like. Like we have Mad Max and we have the day after tomorrow and we have like all the apocalyptic visions of the future. Um, We have all these cop shows and we have all these like, you know, re-entrenching of like, these are, this is the, the norms, but we don't have enough Wakanda, right? Like we yeah. don't have enough of this vision of like people living in harmony with nature. There's this amazing essay that Kendra Pierre Lewis um, wrote that's titled Wakanda doesn't have suburbs. <laughs> you haven't heard of it yet because it's in yeah. um, the anthology that I co-edited that's coming out in September. That is um, essays and poems and art and quotes, and it's it's all put together by women climate leaders. And her essay reminds us of the opening scene of Black Panther, where it's just this like swooping aerial vision of mm-hmm. these like lush green hills and forests and herds of animals, and then like whoop, you're like in the city. And there's like public transit and all these pedestrians and the buildings are like covered with plants. And that's like the only nice vision of the future that we have in movies. That's like in harmony with nature. Like how can we actually have cities and like safe places for people to live and rural areas 
and lush nature and regenerative agriculture and public transit and green buildings. Like we need so many more um, pieces of popular culture that help us see what that could look like. Um, And it really opened my eyes to have her tell me like, oh, it, we just, we, there are many reasons I want to live in Wakanda, but like the fact that it represents a sustainable and resilient future is now one of them too. Yeah. And, and what's like valuable even about that analogy is that if you look, I wrote wrote an article a long time ago called the blackest place on earth and it was blackest place on marble earth but it was really talking about just that the the kind of Mm -hmm. entrenched details the kind of subplot to all of the details across the Bernanzana landscape and why I think the details are important is because Ruth and Hannah Beachler made a 500 page bible that started to to talk about the world building around this place and so there's so much work that has to go into getting to that vision. And we neglect the work, right? We neglect the, the early part of the work. And this is the work, this, this moment where we're actually trying to take a step back and vision what our worlds can look like when we mm-hmm. do focus on climate as a considered part of our work and the way that we uh, think and care about our land uh, as a part of our cultural impact in mm-hmm. place. Like, all of that is extremely important. And so now is the time that we create the vision, the radical visions for what uh, mm-hmm. looks, what it looks like moving forward. And so much of what I've struggled with in, in movement work in the last you know, 20 years has been, um, and not to say that it hasn't happened, but a lot uh, has centered on what we dismantle. And mm. if you listen to black women authors, you, you see often about what we can create. Uh, whether it's Audre Lorde, um, you know, like Gwendolyn Brooks, like you see people talking about what a future can be. And I think that's what's so beautiful in, uh, about this moment. Not only are more black women being lifted to the forefront of these conversations within movements, the instinct to think not just about the way we dismantle systems, but the way that we create new visions for just futures is embedded within the kind of that cultural lens and cultural perspective. And that is so needed in this moment. It may be the thing that saves us ultimately. Right. Um, it's, it's not just about... No pressure. Yeah, <laughs> no pressure for sure. <laughs> I'm here. We're yeah. here to support. We all in this. I mean, I would like a nap, uh, yeah. basically, yeah. after listening to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. This kind of makes me think about a project brief for um, our spring studio course last semester. And for me, because I don't, I came into grad school without a background. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm basically teaching myself architecture while I'm doing it. (laughs) It's not the best, but I think the post-processing of like what everything means comes after when I am done with a project and I could just kind of sit and think about it. Um, Mm -hmm. But the project was cited in Gowanus, Brooklyn. um, Mm -hmm. And the whole premise was to design a dwelling community for 30 individuals, but The site itself is extremely charged because you see NYCHA housing placed right Mm -hmm. next to this infamously toxic canal. And there's this rezoning proposal that was released that doesn't mention NYCHA once. And it's actually almost like borderline comedic how they address the climate crisis because there's this diagram in the 
rezoning proposal, they're saying like as the water level rises, they're just going to make the ground floor of the buildings watertight. <laughs> so like I don't, it's not directly addressing any like solutions, architectural Yeah, what solutions. happens if you need to leave the building, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's like, do you just like swim out? I, yeah. Like the, the diagram is actually in the rezoning proposal. And um, like this whole entire time, I was just thinking, like, Gowanus doesn't need 55 new building designs from our studio. Like, Gowanus needs, like, a radical rethinking of the framework and that people are living and working in, um, like, real systemic change. But it's surprising that, like, as a studio and in school, we weren't having conversations about environmental racism, about the rezoning proposal. And it's it's just not built into the fabric of our architectural education, um, which I'm finding to be problematic for sure. So I, I was just wondering if you had thoughts about the grounds for design education and how it's centered around ideas and the history of ideas versus people. Yeah, I've got plenty of thoughts about it. We can, if you want to start <laughs> yeah. a whole podcast right now about this, we can just hit send on right. another. No, um, yeah, I think you know, the history of architectural education has, and I think in connection with kind of whiteness is is often about kind of delineation. And we talk about like colonization, delineation, demolition, and, and then segregation. Like these are, these are ways in which whiteness kind of pervades itself throughout a lot of our profession, but more precisely uh, our kind of academia, uh, whether that's uh, consuming others' ideas, uh, you know, the, the kind of lands, the seat of architectural history is in Africa. Greek Roman architecture is directly derivative of the work that was done there for so many uh, centuries and completely erased from the lexicon of work, right? Um, and so we, we've started to see that over and over and over again. But what happened uh, in the modernist era, international era, we started to erase ornament as a driver for how people connect to space. And so that erasure through Bauhaus and through early international style work was to limit who could do quality work because God was in the details um, mm -hmm. as... as mm -hmm. We know the, the, the quote. And this idea really just says that ultimately we're going to focus so heavily on structure and point line plane so that so much so that we are ignoring the fact that people actually drive our connections to place by way of um, the residue that we leave on that place, the stories that we tell. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I often talk about the fact that we wonder whether or not this is, has grounds or is rooted in the idea you know, these ideas that uh, stories are mapped to our spaces have always been mapped to our spaces. And anytime we start to extract those uh, stories from uh, our physical environment, we start to lose that affinity. And I often point to the idea that um, people don't know what the idea of uh, how many stories in a building, right? Like you can count stories in a building. Well, that really comes from the fact that on the entablatures uh, above windows and uh, above doors, you would see stories written across the top, right? So just little carvings that told the story of place. No way! Ah, the story. Yeah, gotcha, right? And so this idea <laughs> that you can count stories was literally counting the stories that were embedded on the buildings. That. And 
as soon as we started to, to think about how we take uh, that away, we lose uh, our connection to it. I'd say one other thing for me, and one of my favorite architects is Gaudi, because the entire context of the architecture for Gaudi is one that lives and breathes and is storytelling in its entirety. And so mm -hmm. uh, we have to get back to and recognize and value the stories and narratives that are told through the physical spaces we build. And that doesn't that, happen in academia. Yeah. So. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> that just uplifted me. Because <laughs> I think uh, it's really easy to feel negative about architecture right now. <laughs> just given um, all the, the harm that's been done and just the history of, of urban design of our cities, it, it really was built to oppress certain communities and the fact that cities are still operating within this, this racist framework of policies um, just don't make sense anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's, it's really easy to feel like we're being stuck in, in the critical, but I definitely agree with what you're saying about storytelling and how we have to shift the narrative in architecture from like thinking about ideas and concepts and philosophy and how how does this fit in the history of all ideas and concepts to how does this fit in the history of people and where mm -hmm. we are today. I, I think that's yeah. a more inspiring narrative to tell in, in architecture. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering, because both of you have really carved out a space for yourselves to work in a place that's meaningful to you mm -hmm. um, and doing work that's meaningful to you. But I feel like, especially for young graduates or people who are still in school, it's kind of hard to envision a future where we can do that <laughs> without yeah. thinking about what's going on with the economy, with jobs, with opportunities out there. Um, I was wondering how you were able to carve that space out for yourselves after school and really finding that work that speaks to you today. Oh, I'm so excited to hear Brian's answer to this. I'm so excited yeah. to hear yours. <laughs> <laughs> you first. Okay. Um, you know, I think for me, it started in college, all right? like in university, working on projects that told those larger stories. And I think ultimately the way that a lot of our universities set projects in communities that I knew and that I was mm -hmm. from uh, made it that much more um, valuable uh, to me. And so I think the, the way that I thought about it coming out of school uh, was that, you know, I wanted to reshape uh, the way that I wanted to, to interact with the profession. And so I spent the winter and spring after I graduated with my master's degree, I just spent writing. Like, I think there really needs to be a time and a space for students to A, to reflect on what you've done, B, to take a beat, to mm -hmm. uh, recognize where you want to go. As Ayanna said a little bit earlier, like if you don't have a vision for where you want to go, you will just be aimless and you will, you will go into systems, right? Like you'll just drop, dive into the system as it currently exists mm -hmm. and then you'll be complicit and then you'll kind of do those things. And so if you have no clear vision and more than, more than a, a, a catchphrase vision of what you want to do, uh, I filled, I bought my first moleskin uh, after I graduated and I filled the thing. And I think in part, I look back on it still to this day and recognize where I was headed. And I kept saying and, and 
writing things in that notebook that were fine, but also a thousand people had already written it. But I had to get it out of my body to mm-hmm. say, okay, here's what I need to go look for moving forward, because I won't find it in the the kind of mechanical tract that they will put me on in terms of being an architect. And so that was the the best way for me to find that space. Uh, and then also like I quit a bunch of jobs when I was younger, so I had no fear of, like, <laughs> I mean, I just I had no fear. I love how similar our stories are. <laughs> I just, like, yeah, I was very much like, you know what? You're on that bullshit. I'm going to leave. I'm out. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So I had no yeah. fear of it when I got to the profession. I was just like, I'm, I'm going to yeah. do the thing that I want to do. Either you're going to come along or I'll be somewhere else. Oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> so... I'll start with that last part. I mean, I think it's really hard to create your own path, your own field, I would say, in Brian's case, um, if if you're making decisions out of fear. <clears throat> and mm-hmm. the same has been true for me. Um, and I know that the reason is that I'm just super lucky that my my mom has my back. Like, we're not rich, but I can go live on the farm with her and have fresh eggs every day. And like, I'll be fine. Like my plan B, like I'm totally fine with my plan B. And so when I'm sort of like butting up against a decision that's like, do I stay in this horrible job? Do I take a job instead of creating my own thing? I'm just like, I'm fine. And I know that that is an immense luxury, even though it's not associated with wealth. It's like just having a safety net, like. Mm-hmm. Not that I sort of like ever intended to use it, but when I quit the last time I had a boss five years ago or something, I quit my job without a plan and went there for a month and did something very similar to what Brian did. I I started, I didn't wasn't writing at the time. I was reading and I talked to every single person that I knew in the field of ocean conservation who was like an executive, a leader who I respected. And I said, what's the most interesting work happening? Don't worry if I can get the job. Don't worry if I'm qualified. Don't worry if the job even exists on their team. But like, what's the hot shit? And I just didn't get any exciting answers. And as a result of those conversations, which was really depressing, and I was like, maybe we're done with ocean conservation. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought about leaving all of that to do climate work. And instead, as a part of those discussions, people started to say, oh, well you know, while you're figuring out what's next, do you want to do this consulting project for me? And so after a few of those, all of a sudden I was a consultant and I was getting all these requests that were bigger than I could do as one person. So I like called all my homies and was like, do you want to be a consulting firm? And they were like, what does that mean? And I was like, I don't know. I put your face on the website. And if you want to team up with me on a project, like we'll all get paid for the hours we put in. And they were like, okay, that seems easy. Um, And so I got to collaborate with all these incredible people on really interesting projects. But as a consultant, like you don't actually get to see things through, which is extremely frustrating to put all of this energy into analysis and recommendations. But no one, even though they've paid for it, like I don't think people read those reports and I don't and I know that they're not implementing the recommendations. So that was not a great use of my time. But the way that I've been able to sort of earn the latitude to create and explore is through my writing, a thousand percent. Like when I was working in the Caribbean doing ocean zoning work with island governments and fishing communities, I blogged the entire thing on National Geographic. I think I 
I wrote over 50 blog posts during the course of those few years, telling the story as it unfolded, what I was learning from elder fishermen, how the community consultations were going, what were the different iterations of the zoning map. I was like telling the story in real time. And through my writing, it's how people got to know me and my work. Otherwise, like it's a tree that falls in the forest, right? Like I wanted people to learn the lessons that I was learning and sort of like repeat my successes and not my failures. And it's the same reason that I've become, you know, relevant and sought after as a voice in this moment because of the op-eds that I've published. And so being able to put your vision out into the world is just critical. And through writing is how I organize my thoughts as well. And so it has this double benefit of being able to sort of plant a flag in the public for what you believe and the future that you want. And at the same time, like getting your own head together and being known for for being a leader in this this line of thinking. And so I can't sort of advocate enough for people putting words to the page if they're graphics or models or blog posts or op-eds or all of that I think is super important because we need a record of the evolution of our thoughts and our work and we need other people to be able to to see that and learn from it. So so big yes to writing and then big yes also to just refusing to be put in a box. Like mm-hmm. getting a PhD in marine biology where I had one chapter of my dissertation that was about behavioral economics and another that was about policy and another was about sociology and like one and a half chapters were about marine ecology. Like that was deliberate. Like I I think the science is critical, but it's only one part of the puzzle for how do we, you know, how do we how do we sustainably manage coral reefs, which was what I was studying at the time. And mm-hmm. so retaining either within yourself as an individual or through the collaborations that you make, this interdisciplinarity, I think there's no other way. And that, you know, in academia, you can sort of like people try to push you into specializing. And that's something that I always just was like, that's not for me. Like, I'm really glad that some people are looking at like, you know, the motor neurons of octopuses, because like, they are incredible. And like, I want to understand them, but I'm not going to be a person in the lab. So mm-hmm. um, I think both Brian and I are people who are connecting the dots between these different major issues. And, like we need people who are exploring the weft and weave that is the reality of the world, right? Who are are bringing in experts from all these fields, who are collaborators. Um, So not everyone needs to be a generalist. And I would say I'm a generalist, but like within a specialty, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there's, there's value in that. So we each... We each have a role to play. And I think when it comes to the climate crisis, it's a matter of figuring out how your skills map onto the solutions that are needed. Yes, we need to volunteer. Yes, we need to vote. Yes, we need to march. Yes, we need to talk about it and like get people on the same page. We also need to figure out like, what can I uniquely bring to this moment? Mm-hmm. And Urban Ocean Lab for me was the thing, right? It's how as a kid from Brooklyn with a PhD in marine biology, who is a climate policy nerd and cares deeply about justice and like has a thing for design. I'm not, that's <laughs> not my expertise, but like how, what is the nexus of all of those things? And like, oh no, there's not enough happening at that nexus. So let mm-hmm. me try to, to pull some of those threads together. Do you feel especially that there's a silence from 
architecture and design in terms of this this fight for climate justice? Like, do you feel a sense of absence? I feel like most people just don't want to deal with the magnitude of change that is coming because it is mm-hmm. so incredibly inconvenient. Like, it was only maybe two years ago that I realized that the title of Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth, was actually spot on. I was like, what is he even talking about? Um <laughs> It's extremely inconvenient to have to deal with sea level rise, for example. Like, it's coming. We can't put a wall around the entire ocean. Like, what are we going to do? And a lot of people just don't want to deal with that reality. Like, sea level is going to rise feet or meters, not inches, right? So what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And then we have a situation where a lot of the low-income housing is in low-lying areas, in flood zones. What does that... How do we deal with that? Like, how do we protect people? How do we... Think about the the like massive transformation that is needed, Um, and so that's where I think sort of the blinders are around just like how do we deal with the fact that like whole neighborhoods, whole cities need to just dramatically change, and so it's really hard to deal with a problem that you're not acknowledging fully its existence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a specialty in America, right? Like not acknowledging large systemic uh, <laughs> issues, right? Uh, and I think, yeah. you know, somebody who lives in New Orleans and has seen the the intersection of of climate and housing policy, climate mm-hmm. and and uh, kind of justice or justice work in in, in general, um, it is absolutely critical to uh, think through the ways that we can, you know, marshal our particular efforts in unison uh, in this moment. So I don't have, I don't think either of us have the answers, but the whole point of organizing uh, and and making sure that we're working with, with folks across the board is so that we can get a, a clearer picture uh, of, of what the outputs look like. Uh, yeah, we can really come up with some answers it's, together. Exactly. Get all, get all, get the smartest people you know to team up. Yeah, in the same room and see what happens. Yeah.